0: You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit HarvestPhiladelphia.org. Good morning and happy new year, Harvest. It's so good to be back. It's so good to be here with Christ Christchantic Church. We just stole the front, so whoever usually sits here, don't take it personally. This is church planner heaven. Like, you come in here and you got people doing sound and children's ministry. Like, don't be, like, upset if we don't help you because we don't want to. We just want to watch and just enjoy. Like, they got a team for that and a team for this. And, 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 like, everybody's doing their thing. There's a sound guy. Like, he got my stuff right before the service started. For us, you know, Pastor Darren and I do that like in the middle, like when everybody goes to have coffee and stuff, and we're just like, "What's wrong? We need batteries." So it is so great <laughs> to be here. Like this is a good moment. So just let me kind of ease into it and enjoy myself. Um, you all have been so gracious to my family and I from the last time that we came. Um, we appreciate everyone who reached out, gave encouragement, um, even cooked us meals and stuff. Um, we really enjoyed making new family. And and I'll add as another encouragement. I think I was here in November last time. Um, and since then, uh, Dalton and I are Instagram official, so we're connected. So let me just say something. We, we, we became friends on social media in November, and then he got engaged. Now, I'm not trying to say anything specific, but it pays to be my friend. Um <laughs> I've been trying to work my way because there's levels to this stuff, and, and I made friends with a friend of his, Zach, and we still couldn't connect, and then Pastor Matt, and then I just came here and put him on the spot. He requested me, and then the gates of heaven opened in his life. <laughs> I can't prove that, so let me kind of stop. And so uh, with that being said, it's just so good to be here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you and having our church and Pastor Darren. It really is a blessing. Um, members of Christ Center Church, let me just get you to raise your hand if you're from Christ Center Church. It's so great. I want everybody to see our people, um, just to know that they're here. Do not invite them to come back because they belong to us, Um, but it's good. It's good to worship with you. That being said, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, and then I'll have a brief prayer, and then we'll get into the Word of God. Um, Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it reads as such. When he had decided to release him, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his, in his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for for restoring all things uh, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. Bow with me if you would for a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, I come in today just loaded with feelings and thoughts and prayers, and yet I feel you speaking like The burning bush to Moses saying, the place where you are standing is holy and take off your shoes. That we should never rush in presumptuously um, upon you in your presence, thinking we know what you need to do for us. Rather, Lord, I pray in this moment, give us the grace to drop all agendas, all issues, all things, and and give us the grace to take captive our own attention to fix it on Jesus. I pray that you would love someone with my words, Lord. Jesus' names. And for his sake, I pray, amen. Amen. The title of the message today is Beholding the Gospel. And I was thinking of something that I read a couple months ago, um, that for the past year and even today, there is a famine in India. 15% of the population in India live in famine this morning. 3,000 children will die from starvation in India. Tomorrow, another 3,000 will die. On Tuesday, another 3,000 will die. On Wednesday, another 3,000 will die. India ranks 97th in addressing hunger. Here's the surprising thing. India does not have a lack of food. The Hindu religion teaches, and this is the prominent religion in India, Um, They teach reincarnation in the form of animals, and so it is against religious laws to kill rats, mice, cow, or any other animal. Every cow eats enough food to feed seven people, and there are 200 million sacred cows in India. If the people in India would stop feeding these cows, they would have enough food to feed one billion people. That is more than one-fourth of the entire world's population. So in other words, India does not have a starvation problem. India has a worship problem. Because what they have declared as sacred is causing the death of what we would declare as sacred in terms of human life. Because you can't touch the cows, you have to sacrifice the children. And I would say in many cultures outside of India, what we see all around is the revealing of people's hearts based on what they consider is sacred. My heart has been weighed down and I've I've decided to go a little bit differently in this sermon than I planned because if you're like me and you've watched the news for the past seven days, um, it's been fear, it's been travail, it's been God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? What do you want us to do? It's been, I need to turn off social media because I'm connected to a lot of idiots. Um, Not Dalton, but just, you know, everybody's an armchair correspondent on the news. Let Let me tell you what I mean. Last Sunday... Uh, December 29th, West Freeway Church of Christ in Texas, a man named uh, Keith Keenan, a 43-year-old, goes in, pulls out a gun, I think it was during communion, and kills two people before he is shot down himself. This is during a worship service, Uh, a man who had been coming to the church and receiving benevolent offering from the church and was getting upset that they weren't giving him cash when he would come, and he comes in with a shotgun and kills two people. Just a couple days later, I think the very next day, December 30th, Pastor Wang Yi of China, some of you may have heard of it, was sentenced to a nine-year sentence in prison for preaching the gospel. Nine years. The the authorities came to him last December, seized his assets, seized all that he owns, threw him in prison with uh, many of his church members, about 100 And they had a raid. In the same way we would have a raid on a drug house or a methamphetamine lab, they raided house churches, they raided mosques, they they raided temples. But they took this pastor and gave him a nine-year sentence for preaching like I'm doing now, for having church like we're doing now. They got the people who do children's ministry, who set up things in the hall, the sound people. Well, they don't have sound like that because they have underground churches, but they got everyone and put them in prison for preaching. And then finally, when we got to the end of the week, we see tensions boiling over in Iran. Because a very important general has been killed, and you even see the media uh, uh, perpetuating certain narratives, and, and one side is manipulating the storyline, and another side is saying something else, and here you have a man who has been killed, and now there is tensions between our country and theirs, this country that believes for the most part religiously that we are the great Satan, and that they have to usher in the 12th Imam, and I'm not trying to go political at all by any means, but but we are in the midst of trouble in the, world, and the question is, what does the church do? How should we feel? How should we interact when the world around us has no idea what to do? And everybody in the world is saying, you should come beat at the same drum that I'm beating at because I know what's going on. I mean, look, look at my Facebook. I, I'm reading all the blogs. I'm listening to the podcast. And clearly, you know what's happening, but you can't balance a checkbook. Uh, 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 this is telling us so much about our nation's psyche right now. And, and, and I really think that we as the church need to think about this because unless we learn to think rightly of Jesus in such a way, hear me out, if we don't learn to think of Jesus in a way that we're transformed and then mobilized outside of the church, our culture will deteriorate into intellectual and spiritual cannibalism. The world is devouring itself. But will the church join into what the world is doing? Will we praise Jesus on Sunday and praise a politician or our favorite news anchor on Monday night? Will, will we praise Jesus at the altar, at the throne room on Sunday, and, and will we go to work and abandon Jesus so we can take up our tribes to attack someone else and call them an idiot or a fool because of what they believe about politics? See, I think we're stuck in a moment right now where God is calling us to impact the culture in such a way, but to, to impact the culture, you've got to understand Jesus. You've got to make sense of Jesus. And, and, and so what I, what I think the book of Acts is helping us to do is if you read through the book of Acts, you see it's just a collection of moments in which God sovereignly acted through his church. Somebody once said you could rightly call the book of Acts the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because when you read it, the apostles really don't know what they're doing. They, they just say, I think I know where God is calling me. And then they go and then God shows up and changes something because God is free to call audible at any point that he wants. All God needs is for people to show up, and he can do it. Matter of fact, sometimes you don't even have to show up. He'll just bring you. Uh, uh, sometimes God will get you kicking and screaming and send you into the mission. But at first, we've got to get the gospel right. We've got to get the gospel right in such a way where, hear me out, it's not just information that we have, but it's transformation we experience and then share with the world and invite them to come in and have the same. We've got to get to a place where we are living as instruments of Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and not just on Sunday. And so the context of the book, if you've ever read through Acts, and I hope you have, it's a great book. Um, In in chapter 3, Peter and John, who have become good friends after the Holy Spirit, uh, if you read through the gospel, you know Peter and John were not exactly the same. They had different characters. They were very different. But when the Holy Spirit came, these two formed a strong relationship, and they had been traveling together, spending time together, doing life together, and doing ministry. And so when you get to chapter 3, they come to the temple, as, as had been their custom, and they interact with a lame beggar who had been lame all his life. And they would bring him to uh, the gate called beautiful. And he would sit there and he would beg alms. Because there was a belief that if you gave to the poor, it could somehow have a salvation benefit for you. That you could kind of earn your way with God. And so they get there, and and the man looks at Peter and John. He wants them to give him something. Peter's like, we're church planners. We're broke. So he says, silver and gold have I not. We don't have partner churches yet, but such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. This man gets up. The miraculous happens. Everyone is astonished, and the gospel power works beautifully. And so we see when you read chapter three or all of Acts, you see this, that the gospel is the power of God that turned us from haters of God to changers of community. Let me say that again. You and I were born haters of God. You may have said, I'm a good person, but you were hating God. We didn't want to deal with God. We turned our face from God. We wanted glory without God. We wanted good stuff without God. And when you are saved, it changes you in such a way where there must be fruit. Unless you got saved and died the next minute, there should be some fruit in your life. And if there's a church of us, there should be a whole bunch of fruit that we're trying to bear together. Not the pastors and elders, and if we feel called to, we'll join in with the fruit. There's some fruit that each of us are called to accomplish in our life. That was a great place for amen. Every time I come, I'm trying to train you guys and bring you up to speed. It's okay. We're going to make this a Baptist church before we're done. Uh, It's going to be a Baptocostal kind of thing. That's what we're doing. We're kind of Reverse gentrifying and kind of get you guys to come near with us. Okay, we're working on it. And so here's here's our big idea today. The big idea. We must treasure the gospel in such a way that we become instruments of power, producing noticeable transformation in hearts, homes, and cities. And here's the action idea. Be utterly astounded with Jesus. Because when you're utterly astounded with Jesus, change will happen. You can't live in sin long and be astounded by Jesus. You can't be bitter and unforgiving and be astounded with Jesus at the same time. You can't be unfruitful and have a relationship where you go, I know I talked to Jesus last night. It's impossible. And so I want to redefine in the moments that are ours how we see ourselves as Christians and how we have motivation to live out a radical faith. Let me say something. I hear people talk radical faith all the time. Believe it or not, in the Bible, there is no radical faith because radical faith is just normal faith. But we got to contrast that because what we call normal is actually really lazy. And so we need to start saying radical to get people to be normal. Isn't that crazy? Like, what we have in America is abnormal faith. We have, like, I'm a podcast, 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 so I feel it. And then when I'm ready to go, like, if the worship team gets me in the mood, then I'm going out there to serve Jesus. But if I'm having a bad day, man, you better watch out. Like, Like, we have this westernized Christianity that I want to give a call to bring us out of because I really believe our culture is in a decline. I really believe the church in America is too comfortable right now. I really believe that we are so much full of individualism, it is hard, almost impossible to our minds to live as a collective organism the way the apostles did. I'm not saying it has to be the exact same way, but there does need to be a death of our own agenda. When Jesus died on the cross, your rights died on the cross. When he sacrificed himself, we, we sacrifice in him our right to be right and say, Jesus, I just don't want to do that. And so I think the text is teaching us a couple things. So I want to answer this question. What is it about the gospel that creates such life transformation so radical that it transforms whole societies? What is it about the gospel? I want to give you four realities, and I'll, I'll mind my time because I don't want uh, Pastor Matt to fall out with me and give me the fist and tell me to be quiet. The first one, first thing the gospel reveals, number one, inescapable sin. Inescapable sin. Verse one says, while, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded. Pay attention to that because in verse one, it says that they were just amazed. They, I mean, verse 10, they were amazed. Uh, uh, there's, in the Greek, there's an escalation. They saw the miracle and the miracle drew their attention. But then when you read in the Greek in verse 11, it's saying that they saw Peter and John, and now they were utterly astounded. In other words, they saw the miracle and said, it must have been Peter and John, not Jesus. And so they see this man standing there clinging to them. And and, and so the Jews who are present are, are looking at this, and they are, watch this, worshiping in a sense Peter and John, because they are ascribing to them the, the power to heal, the power to restore. It says they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Look at Peter's interrogation. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Here's the first thing about our condition you have to see. We, we are inescapably bonded to sin because of our condition. Our condition is one in which we, not just by nature, not the environment you're in, by our own internal nature from the time that you're born, we love to ascribe to our self-worth and love to think that we're better than we are. If you've ever been, not this one, but if you've ever been to another church where people want to sing on the choir, you know not everybody was called to be on the choir. But they believe that God has somehow just given them the gifts and the skills. And like, it used to be a time where everybody wanted to be a preacher. Now everybody wants to be a singer. And I'm like, I'm hoping Kanye changes it where you just want to be a producer or a sound guy Because some people just, we need an American Idol in the church. Like, it's just not for you, boo-boo. But they want to be up in the church and trying to sing and do stuff. Here's why. What do we always tell kids? Well, not me. But we say, you can do anything you set your mind to. No, you can not and you shouldn't try. Some things are good things, but God calls you to great things. And when you depart from great things for good things, everything becomes a bad thing. The wrong relationships, the wrong pursuits of finances, the wrong, spend, the wrong way you spend your time adds up. And you can ruin a life and forfeit. And so when he says, um, do you presume by our power or our piety, the word for power there is dunamis. Use a lot in Acts, and in, in, in piety, he's referring to there, there's a certain um, um, holiness. There's something about how we live that they're assuming they live in such a way with God that God just has to give miracles, that they can somehow blackmail God into giving them power. And so what Peter is doing, what many of us struggle with, see, God sets the stage for the miracle. He prepares the pulpit in the middle of the issue. And, and so many times, many of us don't experience God's best is because God knows when he finally moves and does something amazing, we're going to enjoy the pulpit a little too long and preach our own message and not Jesus. We have to hold to our blessings in such a way that we're willing to lose it to put Jesus on front street. That, 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 that when people wonder, how did this happen, we, we don't let the condition speak. See, if you're not in Christ, your nature is always going to battle against you. You're always going to be limited. You're always going to be stuck to some type of self-aggrandizement, some type of self-pleasure. Why? Because you don't have a connection with God. The Bible says that that those who are not connected to God are dead in sins and trespasses. It means spiritually you are cut off from God. And so pay attention to this. Not only does he talk to them about their condition, but he's revealing a cultural conviction. If if you saw in verse 1, I know I didn't read there, but you can read it on your own. Um, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The the prayer was such a cultural thing for them that even though Peter and John had got saved by Jesus, they still maintained many Jewish traditions. I want you to see this because we have three different concepts of culture that many of us live in. Some Christians are against the culture. It's like, you know, we need to go get motorhomes and live in Alabama and just withdraw from the world, or we're going to go live in Nevada and stay away from everybody. That's one view. Then the other one says, you know, we're going to be in the culture, but not of the culture. We're just going to kind of battle a little bit, but we'll try to stay pure. But then there's one that I think that the gospel really sends us into, and it's to be in the culture and for the culture to be in the culture and try to steer the direction of the culture towards God's intended purpose. What that means is if you're a Christian who is Christian on Sunday, but at your job, you don't do a good job, you have no ethics whatsoever, and you steal time, you're talking about you reading your Bible, but you stole an hour off the clock. You're, you're in the culture and trying not to be of it, but you're really, in a sense, you're, you're welcome to degrade where you're at. The gospel is not at work in your heart, because when you are, you'll know you work unto the Lord. I, I got one amen, okay, I'm gonna work for five. And, and, and so and so, what should happen when we're in the culture and for the culture, we do like Peter does. Peter is engaging, he and John, in the culture. They're showing up for prayer, but they are available for God to use them to reach someone. They weren't preoccupied with what they needed to go to. And so now when Peter preaches them, he's going to reveal something. Watch verse 13. Uh, when you get the verse 13, he says... The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, basically saying, your God, the God you you know as Jews. He said, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he decided to release him. But you denied, second denial, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. What he's letting them know, if you remember when Jesus was being tried before Pilate, Pilate said, I don't find any fault in him. And then they asked the crowd, and the crowd said, listen, uh, we know we can get one person released to us. We would rather have the murderer Barabbas than Jesus, knowing he's innocent. And so what they did was, some commentators say here, is that they chose a culture of death to expose their children to rather than a holy one who would change their lives. That's no different than today. And even in our culture today, there are snipes and attempts to take Jesus out. How about Netflix last month? They, they came up with a show, um, was the first temptation of Christ, and it is a, a blasphemous, degrading attempt to make Jesus a homosexual and marry a weed-smoking ratchet chick. Y'all know what ratchet means, right? I, I didn't have time to try to translate. <laughs> I'm trying. Darren's better at contextualizing than me. Um, but they made Mary a John, and, and, and they brought Jesus down. Here's why. People who aren't right with Jesus will always need Jesus to be more man than God. Because as long as he's God, I can't have my way. See, see, you can have all kind of gods you worship, but if your God is not free to tell you that you're wrong, that's not God, that's your ego. And so the issue with Jesus is Jesus is always going to confront you in some kind of way. He's going to do it lovingly, but if you read the Bible right, Jesus will confront you. He will love you out of it. God loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so Peter is letting them know, you have created a culture of death. You killed the only one who could save you. You denied. Listen to the names that he gives Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. In other words, the source of life, the prince of life. He, he is the one from which all life comes from. And he said, you cut off the same one who wills that you kept breathing while you killed him. And so he's letting them know and letting us know that if we want to win the world for Christ, we want to see people break free from inescapable sin, what has to happen is the church needs its own culture to counteract the culture out there, meaning we've got to be on guard that we don't take our practices that people do on the job and bring them into church. It means that when we try to disciple people and bring them to Jesus, we can't disciple them into our political persuasion. It means that we've got to want people to look like Jesus, not like me. I've been into the writings of James K. Smith a lot. He writes a book called You Are What You Love, and he gives this illustration. He says, "Think of an iceberg, okay? And the tip of the iceberg is your conscious thinking." And he said, "In a, in a given day, only five to seven percent of the stuff you do is really conscious choices and conscious thinking. Everything else is at the bottom of the iceberg. You're breathing, all, all your functions. Sometimes you have a job to work and you're on autopilot. You don't even know how you got to work. You just drove." Right? You ever done that? Yeah. Some of you were texting. Um, and, and, and you're just on autopilot, right? And he's saying, here's what we do too much in church. Sometimes we bring people in and we try to correct the 5 to 7%. We say, you got to come to church, you got to read, you got you to memorize scripture, right? But we don't get to the place where we get to the bottom of the iceberg, where we get to the subconscious dispositions and the feelings. He said, we've got to create a culture within the church that deals with the disposition where do we just try to deal with the outside practices? Let me illustrate. Check my watch. I went to a church. A um, friend of mine was being installed there a little while back. I mean, this is maybe two years ago. He's being installed. I'm happy for him. Um, this was a church that was dying out. They only had a couple of people. They were an older church, no new generations. And he comes in. And I can tell people, you know how you go to a church and they really want you to be a part of it. And they're talking to me and it's predominantly white. And so at the church. I'm excited. I'm talking to people. One of the elders comes over and talks to me and he shakes my hand. I tell him, yeah, hey, my name is Eric. Good to meet you. Um, he says, listen, he's, I'd say 60, 65. He says, listen, we've got another color that goes here. His name is Darnell. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Now, here's what's happening. I'm not accusing him of racism, but there is a disposition at the bottom of the iceberg that says there's a certain cultural narrative that we got to follow that I'm used to. Watch. I'm an older white man, and all I have to offer is Jesus. Therefore, that's not enough. So let me help him get with his people. I'll be over here with these people. I want him to come, but he won't come just because of me. And so I have my own cultural disposition because I'm saying, oh, he's probably got a Confederate flag on the back of his car. Like, I, you know, you're thinking all kinds of stuff and stuff is going through your mind. And, and, and so I'm like, but, but here's what God was saying to me in that moment. Don't walk away from him. Because the culture here has to be such where your messiness and my messiness can interact. And so I talked to him. I never got, poor Darnell. I don't know. He might still be the only <laughs> one over there. I never went and talked to him. Um, I just left it alone be, because that we have to, do you see what I'm saying? We have to be countercultural within the church. We have to say, I know this is my disposition, and I have to work against it. I have to develop a culture, a subculture within my life that changes the rhythms. Think about this. Everybody, almost everybody's got a cell phone, right? Hope some of you kids don't. It, in a given day, your phone You've got calls, you've got emails, you've got calendar. I mean, I got my calendar in here. I got my bank account. And so my phone preaches to me that I am the center of its universe. So as I use my phone, I reinforce to myself how central I am to things. So how can I make time to interact with God and pray and walk in the way Peter and John did, where God could use them, when this is reminding me that I'm the center of the universe? I'm not saying anything's wrong with your phone. I'm still going to use mine. But... You've got to insert practices into your life that remind you this is not all life is. That there is more to life than the last text message you've got. You've got to work in such a way that the narrative is not telling you, I don't have anything to offer because they're black, I'm white, or I'm white, they're black. They've got money, I don't. I didn't go to college. That should never be in church. Never. Never. When you see it, you hear it, you got to work against it, and you got to make yourself uncomfortable to establish the new culture because what's going on is, James Smith calls it, cultural liturgies. Your liturgy is what teaches you how to worship what you love. And so we have several cultural liturgies that are teaching us to love a certain way. I mean, go Instagram. Somebody's going to tell you love yourself, right? Stay away from toxic people. Now, here's the problem. Every unsaved person is toxic in some way. If we cut off all toxic people, there's just no ministry to do. We're going to get bored in here because eventually I'm looking at you too much, you're looking at me too much, and you can only have so many community groups. I don't know what y'all call them, but I need new people because they get used to me, I get used to them, and we get bored because the mission is what invigorates the church. Show me a church without a mission. I'll show you a country club. You get all the budget you want, and people are going to hell outside. There's a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask fish. Meaning when you're so immersed in something, you don't know what's going on. That's why when that man said that to me, at first about reaction, I'm just like, what in God's flat earth? Like, what is he saying? <laughs> and I realized that he's been immersed in this for years. Just like I've been immersed in something else. But when we come together, let's have a, a loving collision in Jesus. Where I can say, I don't want to talk the darn now. I want to talk to you. You get to know me. We might have more in common than me and him. Don't assume because we're the same shade that, that all of a sudden we brothers. We got to live like the blood of Jesus is all that matters. I'm not saying you got to deny who you are. I'm black. I can't change that. In the summer, I get blacker. It's just going to be that way. But the way we live and relate to one another, y'all can laugh. <laughs> can I laugh at that? <laughs> you can laugh at that. Amen. Just don't call me Tyler Perry. I said that last time. You can call me whatever. And here we go. They got a good laugh out of them. All right. I said it. Don't call me that. But it is what it is. And so here's what you've got to look at in your heart. Ask yourself these two questions. Put this on your phone. Ask yourself this every day this week. What am I giving myself to daily? What am I giving myself to? Put it another way. If you have nothing to think about it, you have 15 minutes to yourself, what do you think of when everything is just silent? What excites you? What do you plan on? So ask yourself, what am I giving myself to daily? And second, what is it doing to me? Are you becoming better by obsessing over the relationship you're in? Planning your vacation, planning your retirement, whatever it is. Are you getting better? Because what Peter was challenging the Jews to see is, yeah, you got Jesus out the way, and you're cursed because of it. That your culture is just devoid of redemption. Redemption. And so we have to look at that. Are we prepared for God to create a pulpit for us in the midst of a possible war? If there was a World War III, are we ready to talk more about Jesus than Trump? Don't answer too quick. Because some of us are like, well, I want to know what's going on. I was in the military. Like, I wanna, I'm talking to guys from the military on Instagram, and we're talking about stuff, and I'm going to tell you what you talk talking about because y'all will say I'm crazy. And then there's other people who are like, oh, man, I'm really scared, and that's valid, and I don't know what's going to happen. But, but we've got to put Jesus all in the middle of that. And we've got to see a sovereign God who does whatever he will. Hear me out. I understand you may be afraid of World War III, but that is nothing compared to the wrath of God. When you think of and consider, and we'll hit that verse in a little bit, the momentary wrath of Iran is nothing compared to the nuclear wrath of God. And so you can't change your life just because there might be a war and not change your life because Jesus is coming. That's called hypocritical. If there is a war, it is because God in his sovereignty has ordained it to come to pass. And he will accomplish his purposes in that war, just like he accomplishes his purposes in your marriage when y'all fight in the morning and you come to church and play it off like you didn't fight in the parking lot. He is still God over that. He's God over Iran. And we've got to live the theology we claim to hold to. If we say that we lean towards the reformed position, or at least I say I do, then i got to live more like what I lean. And so are we prepared for God to create a pulpit for us on the job, in our household? Are we ready to preach to people who are coming in full of anxiety? Listen, if we want to war this week, you know the church will be full next week. Y'all have a bunch of people in here. Yeah, I thought you were atheists. Yeah, but I need to come. I need answers. Are you preparing yourself to answer? Pastor Matt can't talk to everybody at church. Are you prepared for a situation where people need answers and they need to know more than just John 3.16 and Psalm 23? Are you going deeper in devotion and doctrine, or are you still on the surface? It is fine to drink the water, but eventually you've got to learn how to swim. You've got to learn to exegete Scripture for yourself, learn to teach Scripture, learn to get in. I think that's really all the point of last week, Deuteronomy 6. It's all about that. It's making it common in your household with the faith, and now you teach it in such a way that your children go out like arrows. Right? Into the heart of the territory out there, and they make a mark for Jesus Christ. So you've got to do that. You've got to set a plan. Listen, if you don't know where to start, just ask somebody. Put the pressure on your pastor, your elders, your community group leaders to learn the scriptures, to get involved. Why? Because when you do that, God is going to give you undeniable power. That's the second point, and I'm trying to hurry up and bring it to a close. The rest are going to be pretty quick. Undeniable power. Go with me to verse 16. It says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Uh, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, he's not with us anymore, but I get to listen to his sermons for free. Um, He once said, Christianity is firstly a phenomenon and not just a teaching. That with Christianity, there should be an associated power that is displayed. There should be an associated mystery, an associated holiness that you don't completely understand, yet you apprehend. That should be Christianity, not just the content of a sermon or a couple words about the gospel that primarily it should be a life-changing interaction with God. So literally in the Greek, I want you to look at this, because I know like, like if you have NIV, I really think it messes it up in the Greek, and I don't have time but inbox me, we could talk. Um, when it says in ESV, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, um, the Greek is saying, based on faith in his name, this one, his name strengthened. In other words, Peter and John are walking, and if you read the scripture, Peter didn't intend to encounter the lame beggar. Something happened where Peter goes and fixes his gaze on the man. That was the moment, I believe, when God gave Peter the faith to heal that man. Peter was available. God gave the faith. In other words, God is saying, I don't need you to try to have more faith. I give you the faith that you got. But I'm going to call you to use the faith that you got. He's the source of the faith, and he uses the faith to make whole. In other words, when it says whole, it says this man was complete in his healing. He had use of things he never had use of. But culturally, we want to see the culture made whole by Jesus. We want to see people functioning in their calling vocationally. Uh, I love there's a McDonald's I go to where one of the things they do is they hire mostly disabled people to work during the daytime. That is a wonderful honoring of the image bearing of God where we are putting, it is a beautiful thing to work. Not all work is fun, but all work, legitimate work, is glorifying to God. I had to qualify that because I don't know some of you, and so I'm suspicious. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, so in, in this undeniable power, what God is doing, he's showing the power to make whole, but there's another one, he has the power to override. Here, here, here's a phrase for you I really like. There was a Puritan named Stephen Sharnock, and he used this phrase. He would talk about God's overruling wisdom. That is God's wisdom by which he takes stuff that you do or has been done to you and God takes the purpose out of it even though he allows the pain to stay. And he reassigns whatever evil to happen to accomplish his will in your life and mine. God demonstrates his overruling power. That's what you see in verse 18 when it says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's God saying, listen, they didn't kill Jesus because he was powerless. He said, I lay down my life. You can't take it from me. Listen, if you are hurting and something has happened to you that has broken you, understand God saw it. God knew it was coming. He's not surprised by it. He is sitting on the throne, not standing next to it. And he said, I'm going to let that happen for a purpose. So instead of wrestling with what happened, wrestle with what was the purpose behind it happening. Some of us don't find healing because we're stuck on the event. And I know some things are just traumatic and they hurt and you can't forget about it. But you can attach yourself to God to find the purpose behind it. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you desire his presence. He wants you to be with him. Listen, mature believers should think this way. I am so tired, here's my pet peeve, of believers who've walked with Jesus more than a couple years who sit on their testimony. I want to tell you, I know and some of you have been through some seasons in which you wondered how your marriage was going to be, how your finances were going to be. Two years ago right now, I didn't think I would ever preach a sermon again. And so when I think about God's providence, I can't just sit on it and quote you something from the psalm without joining that to my testimony. We've got to get to a place where believers go back to just telling people, I got a testimony I want to tell you about. You can't divorce it from scripture, but you've got to personalize it in such a way that people know it was Psalm 27 that brought you through. You you notice when you study the Psalms, it's not David always saying, Here's what God did for them. It's David saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold in my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies, came upon me to devour my flesh, they stumbled and fell. What is David doing? He's getting happy. And too many of us want a static, logical Jesus who can't do anything with our heart because sometimes the bitterness or the hurt we have has become our identity and we don't want to let go of what we've become familiar with who am i if i let go of what made me who i am don't sit on your testimony think about it meditate on it share it share it with your children let people know that god has done something great listen you need to understand let me tell you if you haven't been with jesus long god is always going to stack the odds against himself to glorify himself in the end he don't want it to be easy it looks hard to you, it's not to him. He's going to work in such a way that in the end of it, they're going to say, that had to be Jesus. God is more glorified than you being broken and saying, I still love Jesus, than if he gave you a Mercedes or a BMW. We've got to stop making our boasts about our education and the things we've got. Listen, if you had any clue what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face and we are rewarded, all of you will be trying to go start churches right now. Because I don't know anything that's going to be more rewarding than that. Because Jesus knows, I just don't understand church planning no more. And, and But I can't run from it. Darren won't let me. It's hard. You fight. You cry. You say, God, what are you doing? Last week was good. This week we got like two people. I can't wait for the worship team to sit down so it looks like we can take pictures because we got people. And I hate when they sit, spread it apart because now it looks like we got nobody. But if you could think about what it'll be like five minutes inside eternity, you would wish you would sacrifice more, pray more, serve more. If you just meditated on the day that you're going to see Jesus, you wouldn't treat this place the same next Sunday. You would be outside before service, trying to get people in, because not everybody is called to be on setup team. Some people need to go out and give coffee at the corner and invite people to come. Some people need to go to the malls and push them in. And, and, and so, let me move forward. God wants to show His undeniable power in the life of christ Center church, in the life of Harvest Bible Chapel. He wants to show it, but it's going to hurt when he does it. So the question might be asked, why am I not experiencing God's undeniable power in my life? Number one, you might not be a believer. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Watch this. Not just as uh, fire insurance or as someone saving you from hell. Has Jesus become the central joy of your life? That when everything is falling apart, you say, I still got Jesus. If you don't have that, you may not be a believer. Number two, you might not experience power because you're not actively building your faith through time in God's word with God's people. You've got to grow in God's word. Wherever God is going to take you, he's trying to build your faith as you go. And some of us, we go through so much in a given week, and you're trying to live off of like two or three chapters a week. Are you kidding me? That's like you trying to go, you building some muscle, and you on a, a, a vegan diet. No offense to vegans, but you on a vegan diet, and you trying to build muscle, and you having like soy protein, and peanut butter, and lentils. It, I don't know if it's going to work. You're not vegan, are you? Okay, see? So he's not a vegan, so you know, you will never be like him if, if you're, listen. I shook his hand. I'm like, this man eats beef. <laughs> He's nice as God, but I know he's not eating lentils at night. Listen, you've got to go from milk to meat in God's word is what I'm saying. We've got to get stronger in God's word. I'm going to put the last two together real quick. Thirdly, the gospel reveals to us unimaginable blessing. If you look at verse 19, it says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Once you ask the question, why does Peter give two things that sound like one? Normally, we tell people you've got to repent. And that's important. In the Greek, uh, repent here, it means uh, meninole. And it's talking about you have to change not just your direction but your purpose. But then Peter says, "Repent and return, or turn back." In ESV, Um, I'm messing up the whole sound. Guy's gonna be mad at me. but, but then there's another word for turn back. In verse 19, you can put it in your margin. It is epistrophe. It, it, it is to talk about perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So, so if you've ever done youth ministry, you know, when youth mess up, they'll come to you and be like, yo, man, I, I messed up. But I repented. I was like, God, I repent. And now I'm good with the Lord. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you repented? Like, what does that mean? I told the Lord I repent. It's like, okay, that's the same as saying I declare bankruptcy and all of a sudden you're bankrupt. Like, no, there's a process. And so what what I believe we need to push for in our culture is a lifestyle of repentance. Put it another way. You committed a sin, the sin revealed to you an idol. If that idol hasn't been overthrown, you're still in a season of repentance over that sin. So it means you shopped and spent way too much for Christmas. It ain't just because you didn't calculate the budget, right? It means your worship was not lined up with Jesus. And you spent... Because the barometer of your heart was leading you away from God. And so that is the enemy you take on in January with your New Year's resolutions. It's not losing 15 pounds. It's killing the idol. Every one of us should be able to talk because you got groups this week, right? We got groups. I couldn't give announcements, but we got groups this week too. And we've got to be talking about what idol am I killing this year? Because you can't do it all by yourself. You need people to give you a perspective. So when he talks about unimaginable blessing, here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, when you, when you look at the text, there are some promises that he says, like, if you turn away from sin, he says in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed from you. What he's saying to the Jews, first of all, he's giving a national call to repentance, That literally if the Jews had repented, the millennial kingdom could have kicked in and everything would have been good and they rejected it. And even today overall, there's this mass rejection of Jesus by the Jewish community. But what if Harvest Bible Chapel, christ Center church, had a movement of calling all of America to repentance and faith in Jesus? But here's the problem. You can't call someone to a place you don't live. If repentance isn't at your house, how are you going to tell somebody else how to do it? It means if I'm repenting and I'm struggling with sexual sin, I know what it's like to get up and leave a movie when the movie is not correct. It means I don't binge watch stuff that's not going to be good for me or my children. It means it's going to cost. It means there's some relationships I'm going to have to have some confrontations with. That's what repentance and turning back looks. And he says, he gives them these promises. He said, look, your sin will be blotted out. There'll be times of refreshing. They'll receive Christ. There'll be the restoration of all things understand what God has for you is not equal to the sin that you committed before you came to him. God always gives you more than you gave him. And so for everything you gave, understand whatever he's going to do is so much more than what you've laid down on the line for him. So why don't we pursue God's blessing? Don't just pursue him to bless Harvest Bible Chapel this year. Pursue to plant two more churches. Plant some, Send some missionaries out. Get some more people married. And Because and, y'all gonna have to replace him. Because you know what's gonna happen. They have kids next and he ain't gonna come. So, so you're gonna need me? I know how it goes. I'm in church playing long enough now. I know. As Soon as something happens, either somebody get together or they break up. You're either gonna lose somebody or for a season. He's gonna say, I, I want to sit with my wife. And Pastor Matt can't stop that. He, he could use him. But otherwise, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm just picking on you. Um, And so, but this reveals to us an unstoppable God when we look at this undeniable, unmistakable power. Um, In these last couple verses, Peter is letting them know, look, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you. Why is he saying that? Because the Jews represented Moses's authority as the final authority. To them, whatever Moses said is what goes. And he's saying, listen, Moses himself said, I'm going to raise up a prophet. Now, if you were to talk to your Muslim coworkers, they would tell you that they believe that that verse in Deuteronomy means that Moses was talking about Muhammad. Now, it doesn't make sense. We could break that down another time, but I'm leaving enough so y'all bring me back to preach again. And so... Uh, <laughs> Hello. Um, and so he says, Moses, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Watch verse 23. And it shall, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came from him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophet in the covenant that God made with your fathers. Jump down to verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God is unstoppable in his plan because God planned everything that stops you. God is unstoppable because he's not surprised because he expected your issues and your failures. He saw it I'm, like, I'm including that because when I work, he's going to go, wow, because that was really stupid. So I'm putting that in the plane. And from eternity past, God has figured out what he was going to do. God is not in heaven like, oh, my goodness, let me turn on C-SPAN. What's going to happen next? It's firm and settled. And you've got to live with the hope and the belief that God has so worked it out that you can rest in him. Listen, to those of you who are perfectionists like me, I love the plan. I love to work stuff out. You got to do it in such a way where you say, if tomorrow, if I don't have a plan right, God's got it. If we don't know what's going to happen next, God's got it. If the money don't work right, God's got it. If the job doesn't go right, listen, right now, I'm planning to go and preaching in Canada in a few weeks. And one of the things they're telling me is Canada is hostile to the gospel. And I didn't even notice, and this is on our continent, and they're saying a time has already come where if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to refuse to marry, same-sex, all this stuff, like, you're going to get persecuted. Count it done. Can you imagine a day coming where you got to figure out who's going to preach because Pastor Matt is locked up? That's not even a joke. We're approaching those days now where people would rather, they would rather have pedophiles, have legal rights to be pedophiles, than a man preach the gospel. Are you prepared for that? It's no different than in the 60s when somebody would get locked up and Martin Luther King, he's in prison, and they say, y'all, we got somebody got to put the house up this week so we can bail him out. Uh, uh, Sister Jenkins last week, she put her house up. I mean, they were doing that. Are you ready to live that way? Have you prepared your finances in such a way that you can lay it down for the sake of the church? Or have you prepared it in such a way that you can print Bibles and be able to teach people at home or host a house church in the country that's hostile to it? Or does this just sound like imaginary babble to you? I would love to talk about it with you if you don't understand what I'm saying because this is where America is coming. If you are a Christian, America is not for you. And if you're a white man, it's really not for you. I didn't mean to say it with a smile, but you guys got it bad if you're straight. Um, You are what I was, so here we go. Um, We can have fellowship now. And so now we can dismiss our, they didn't get it. We can dismiss our differences and we can be hated together. I'll close like this. Some of you saw the movie Schindler's List, by Oscar Schindler, and he was working to get uh, Jews out of Nazi Germany to escape the Holocaust, and he was working to see that they were not killed, and I think the total was like he got 1,000 people out because of his resources. He said the one thing he regretted all his life is he could not get more people out. And I thought of that, and I heard, I think, Ravi is talking about it. He said the one thing that's amazing about God is everybody who he's ever going to get out, he's already settled that they're out. They just haven't got out yet. You got to think about that for a minute. Everybody that is elect to be brought out is already out, but they just ain't get out yet. And so we got to live with the certainty that God is going to bring you to the place where you are completely sin-free someday. He's going to bring all of us to the place where everything is restored, everything is renewed, everything is all good, and we've got to live with that vision. Whatever that vision is, we've got to work to line things up with that. We've got to have the conviction, I got work to do. You've got a ministry to do, and it may not be inside the church, but find your ministry and pursue it. Let me pray for you. Our Father and our God, um, Lord, you give us just amazing blessings and love You have redeemed us for a purpose, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who doesn't know you in an intimate way, in a covenant way, I pray, Lord, that you would rescue them. Um, Would you establish your work and your miraculous power in all of our churches, in our homes? Um, Help us through our struggles. Lord, I lift up our president, our country, all our leaders. I pray for our military today, Lord. I know I can't really pray for world peace because that's not going to happen yet, but I pray for the gospel to go forth no matter what happens. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit HarvestPhiladelphia.org.